Welcome back to the show. I'm Travis Chappell, and I believe that if you can connect with the best, you can become the best. So after creating 800 podcast episodes about building your network, I've come to realize that networking is really just making friends. If you're doing it the right way, anyway. Join me as I make friends with world-class athletes like Shaquille O'Neal, entertainers like Rob Deerdeck, authors like Dr. Nicole LaPera, former presidents like Vicente Fox, or even the occasional FBI hostage negotiator, billionaire real estate mogul, or polarizing political figure. So if you want to make more friends that help you become a better version of yourself, then subscribe to the show and keep on listening because this is Travis Makes Friends. What is going on, everybody? Welcome back to another midweek mashup here on the Travis Makes Friends podcast. If you're new to the show, our midweek mashup is a chance for us to really dive deep on a particular topic. And what we do is we grab the topic, we head back into our archives, which is now hundreds and hundreds of episodes with some of the best and smartest people around. And then we find experts on these topics who gave some of the best advice that we think has been given on the show about these particular things. And they end up being a really, really great, I guess, bomb of truth and perspective on these particular topics and get a lot of great feedback on these episodes. So hopefully you enjoy this one. This episode is a little bit different than some of our mashups because what we wanted to do is present some different perspectives on hustle culture. There's a lot of different people that are saying that you should hustle and grind and the grind never stops and hustle, hustle, hustle. And there's other people that talk about balance and how you should balance these things and strive for balance. And there's other people that are saying, oh, balance is BS and it's impossible and it should be in stages and waves. And there, there's a lot of perspectives on this. And so we wanted to bring in three different perspectives that there might be some crossover there and there might they might agree with their, each other a little bit in certain ways. But we tried to bring three different types of perspectives to really just get you thinking on what hustle means to you and what your value system will allow you to do and how you should set up your life. Because the, the bottom line is it's going to be different for everybody out there. But these three people, I think, broke it down really well. The first one's Ed Milet. It's hard not to bring in Ed on basically every mashup episode that we do because he's just so good at nailing truth succinctly and precisely. And he had a really great thought on this idea of balance. And I asked him about that. And this is actually what he said was the number one regret from his new book, The Power of One More, the one thing that he implied to be true that he doesn't think is true. So we'll bring that in here into this episode as well. Then there's Jefferson Bethke. He wrote a book called The Hell with the Hustle. Obviously, the book title itself kind of gives you a little bit of the behind the scenes on how he feels about the word hustle. So that, that'll be an interesting one as well. And then we bring in Kayala Kanai who is an online marketer who has made tens of millions. Actually, in our episode, we covered the fact that he just crossed over 100 million in total online sales in the last five or six years since he started really crushing his business. And there was a point in his business where he was making a ton of money, but he was just overworked to the bone and really fell into a deep depression, even though he was making more money than, you know, most people would ever dream of making. And his business was, you know, being quote unquote successful. It didn't seem that way to him on the inside. And so he had to completely restructure his life, completely restructure his business. And now everything's, you know, better than it ever was before. So I think these three perspectives will be really unique on this particular topic. And I think it's worth really sitting down and evaluating for yourself what it means for you. So please enjoy these different perspectives on Hustle on this mashup episode featuring Ed Milet, Jefferson Bethke, and Kayala Kanai. You got so many things going on. You got the family, especially when you were in, in like knee deep in the weeds of building the business and the kids were young and there's so much stuff going on. What do you believe about balance? Fallacy. I Actually, I, it's one of the things I don't like that I did in this book is I reread it the other day and it's like, I almost think you would think I think you can have balance if you read my book. <laughs> 
And I don't like that because I don't think you can always be in balance. I think it's something to strive for, but not realistic. Remember this, extremity expands capacity. This is something most people don't understand. The Mm. more you do something to the extreme, it expands your capacity to do it again or bigger, ironically. So for me, the idea that this notion that, well, if I'm crushing it at work, I'm going to be not as good of a dad. Or if I'm really a great dad, I'm not going to be fit. The truth is that for me, when I'm crushing it at work, I come home, I'm a better dad. I'm more engaged. I'm more energized. I think this notion that we get tired because of hard work is actually not true. I actually think we're like batteries and we need to be charged all the time. Most people are tired from lack of ambition, lack of work, lack of engagement, lack of chasing something more than they are by chasing something. When I'm super fit and jacked at the gym, I'm a better business person. I'm a business athlete instead of an average everyday business person. So this notion that if I give a lot to one thing, another one gets less, that's just a flawed premise. It's a flawed belief system. There's no proof that that's true. And I can tell you that it's not true. The more fit I am, I've been better in business. The better I've done in business, the better father I've been. The better father I've been, I'm actually more focused in business. The key is be where your feet are. If I'm at work, I got to be at work. And when I leave there and I go into my home, I need to be in my home. When I'm at the gym, I don't reply to texts and emails, right? Mm -hmm. I'm in that world. I'm I'm going to dispense some justice for an hour, right? I'm going to get after it. Then when I leave there, I'll be where my feet are planted then. So this notion of balance is, is not true. And this notion that because you do a lot of one thing, the other thing suffers is also not true. But because you believe it, it does. Mm, Stop believing that. Now coming into the world of writing books, Mm. um, let's talk about this one really quickly here. So To Hell with the Hustle, the past few books you've written have all been like spirituality, Mm -hmm. Christianity based, right? Yeah. So talk to me about, you said this one came out of like people asking you about this. Um, so, and we kind of joked at the beginning that you're currently in the hustle trying yeah, to right. sell the book right. that's uh, like against hustle. Deepest irony. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, uh, to hell with the hustle is definitely something that I can get on board with. I know that there's a lot of people, especially in my space in the entrepreneurial yes. um, type space, there's yes. a lot of people preaching hustle all the time. Yeah. I don't necessarily like have a problem with working hard because yes. that's obviously part of the process, 100%. but I think that having a self-awareness about what life really is about mm-hmm. is, is super important. So. Can you kind of talk to me about like the origin of this book and, you know, let's give me just one or two key principles that you hope people will take away from it. Totally. Basically it started from the, the, not only me feeling in my own life, but then like what you were saying, there's a, there's like a trend out there that's starting to just get kind of annoying. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like, and you nailed it. Like working hard is amazing. Yeah. Working hard is necessary. We need to work with ambition. We need to work, you know, loving other people and doing it well and with ethics and all that stuff and integrity. Mm -hmm. But yeah, there's this like extra layer that's like, uh, hustle's a good kind of catch-all, but also another one that I think it was like the life hack culture. You know, you just like, we're so obsessed with like life hacking our life, right? Mm-hmm. Just like the shortcut and do this and you'll do this and make sure you have the MCT oil and the bulletproof coffee and that. And, and I take that by the way, and it gives me brain energy. I love it. Yeah. But like, at what point is enough enough? Meaning like how many, like my, my question we have to ask is, have we ever come back around to look at the data? You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like, like okay, we we have every little life hack that we've almost had in human, like like someone from 1500 would just be like blown away at how many little things we can do to our life. Right. And so I just kind of say like, are we, we should have reached perfection by now, basically. Yeah. If there's so many life hacks, we should have kind of reached the logical conclusion, but we haven't, which kind of shows you it's a little false bill of goods, you know, that at some level we're chasing something that can't be grabbed, can't be achieved. Mm-hmm. And what is it there? And so there's that. And then, yeah, the book really gets at the spirit of like, man, I think it was Derek Thompson who in the Atlantic, he has just a brilliant, brilliant article called The Religion of Workism. And he's, you know, non-Christian, like he's a non-religious person. He's just kind of using this language of like, we've almost made work a religion, yeah. right? 
And he, and he really gets into some crazy stats and data in there of like how this is not how it's ever been and what it's doing to us. And he has this cool phrase in there where he goes, you know, for all of human history, work was always about making things. But for the last 40 or so years, work is now about making us. Mm-hmm. And what he says is we are in a very unique culture. We're the only culture in all of human history where work is now no longer about material production, but it's about identity production. Yeah. It's about literally, we don't even care about our job as much. We care about what the job does for us, like in our soul, because we have some idealized version that we're trying to push. Who we, we like want to be perceived as yes. by other people. Yes, and so then that that is, and that's identity. It's, yeah. it's who am I? Yeah. We're trying to answer the question, who am I through work? And I just think that's a very, very, very bad thing to do. It's dangerous. It is really dangerous and too much pressure, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, work is... When it's about making things, that's great. Make things, honor those things, honor that job, be the best you can at that job. But when it's about making us, then that becomes corrosive and toxic on your soul. Simon Sinek recently wrote a book. Love him, by the way. The Infinite Game. Yeah. He talks about that, how how we're playing this game of life like it's a like it's a finite game. Like, yes. uh, like our, our career is a finite thing. Yeah. And it's not. It's not a finite game. Like, there is no winner or loser, clear yeah. rules that are yeah. done. And, and that's the same thing that you were just talking about yeah. is that we're trying to get other people to perceive us to be a certain way mm. based on what we think is going to elevate our status in yes. their eyes when there's no like specified rules for what matters, yes. right? Because some people might be like, oh, your salary matters. Other yes. people might be like, oh, your job title matters. Mm-hmm. Oh, your impact matters. So we're like, we're trying to build this life that impresses all these other people without even having a tool yeah. to measure, measure the actual yeah. success. Totally. Like we, we don't know what that means. We're just like totally. all competing in this thing. We've all picked out our own values that we perceive to be important. Yes. And then that's what we try to portray to other people. So if you view that like making money is important, yes. then you're going to cast that on me. And because yeah. I don't make as much money as you do, then, the then you're just going to be like, well, you're down here. I'm up here. Yes. Right? But I might look at you and be like, well, I just, I do more charity work and, yeah, and exactly. that's what matters to me. Totally. You know, and and you're all you care about is money. So mm-hmm. I'm going to elevate my status above you because I'm a better person than you are. Right? Totally. So we all have like these fake things yeah, that we measure life by that yeah. really nobody's ever agreed on. Totally. <laughs> you know? Totally. And I and I love Simon Sinek by the way. He's one of my favorite. I love him as a thought leader. Some of the stuff he's saying. It was actually a geek out moment. He's in his new books in Target, and they put me right next to his in Target. Oh, nice. And I'm just like, yes, I get to be <laughs> yeah. next to him. Like by his associate. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and hopefully by mine. But yeah, I totally agree, man. And I think. And Jesus even kind of gets at this a little bit. You know, 2,000 years ago, you have this gospel text of, of different pressure groups. You have different religious groups. You have different secular people coming at him with different needs and pressures. Exactly what you said. Like, everyone has different metrics. Mm. And they're all putting this on Jesus, right? Which is fascinating when you open up the gospels. And then clearly, there's even a couple stories where that pressure starts to collide. And then Jesus says, no, no, there is a metric. There is one. It's not all the ones you're saying. It's not all of this. It's not all that. And then he basically says, he says, you can sum up the entire law in this. And it's that you will love God and love neighbor. And I'm like, man, that is a good metric, right? Mm-hmm. To love, to love God, the person in whose image you are made in, but then also to love each other. Because when you're loving each other, then you're not getting into those false sense of metrics. Like you said, where I make this, you don't, right. I do this, you don't. And I think that's just fascinating that in its own way, 2000 years ago, that was the same problem, totally. just in a re- really recapitulated way. And I love how he answers this. No, no, it cannot, it, there is rules, there is things, but it can be summed up in one center. And that's love other people, right? And then yeah. love God and love your neighbor as yourself. So I think that's huge. Yes. What, what are a couple other things that you talked about in the book? So first couple chapters, I would almost call the diagnosis, the problem. You know, there's already been some people mes- messaging me and uh, laughing that like it's right at, you know, I don't know how to say it. Like, it's like, you know, it's kind of, it's when you go to the dentist, it's painful to get the cavity part. And they're always like, oh, that's a little too painful in the first chapters, but hopefully it's the solutions in the second half. Right. And because we have to, you have to truly know the problem, by the way, to know how to solve it. So I think that's oh. why I'm really trying to put some teeth on those first couple chapters. And I go all the way into like industrial revolution. I go back to the invention of the light bulb. I go back to our invention of time. And all of these things actually are 
significantly putting us in our moment right now mm-hmm. that we don't realize because we're 200 years past it. And when you wake up and you're, you know, and you're an adult, you're like, oh, this just is what it is. But it hasn't always been that way. What are the ramifications of that? So the devil and debt, but then the whole rest of the book is kind of a solution. Every single chapter, I think the last five or six is what I try to argue for five or six practices, I call them, that if you can institute those, they're, they're really, really good acts of resistance against the problem. You know what I mean? Okay. So like things like silence, things like honoring a true Sabbath, like a true day of rest, like turn off your phone, stop working, you know, which culturally, religiously or not, America used to do. 50 years ago, you try to go find something open on Sunday, good luck, mm. right? Yeah. Whether you're a Christian or not, that's just that we, we understood that you need to shut down. Right. And so, yeah, rest, Sabbath. I even tell you, there's a whole chapter on obscurity on there. Like if, especially with people with platforms, you know, like us and stuff like that, we need to be making a concerted effort to like hide sometimes. Mm. That's a weird way to put it, but we do. Like we do not need to be out in front. We do not always need to be seen. We do not always need to be known because that does something to our soul where you become this cropped, edited version of yourself that's not actually a true, robust human image bearer that you are. Yeah, I've been in that position before where like you're almost selecting mm-hmm. daily activities based on like what's going to look best on your Instagram story totally. or whatever. Yes. You know, like what, what do my followers want to do? Yes. How about and that, what do I want to do today? Exactly. <laughs> and I think that's a really good point because there's a tension there too because I think it's totally fine and fair to share our days to say where we went to for fun and all that yeah, stuff. Totally. But here, that is the, the corrosive one is when you start actually crafting your days backwards, mm. meaning, I, meaning what do I want to share? Then I'm going to go do that. That's different than I went and did something and I'm going to share it, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And I think there's actually levels of both of those where sometimes just turn your phone off, phone off anyways, don't share. But the other one you said is even worse of like, yeah, we, <laughs> but we don't realize we do it because the more you do it, you start to do it more, right? right you start right. to it's... literally craft activities based on how Instagrammable they are. And that's just a weird place to get at. Yeah, it's just itself perpetuating yeah. mm-hmm. cycle that yeah just drains your soul so totally like, hey, you don't like you said you don't realize it until yes. like a few months later you wake up and yeah. you realize you're not doing anything. well my well and here's what it does it dehumanizes and also completely devalues the entire experience in a way where it becomes more commodified so we live in maui hawaii and i see this all the time and i crack up but it's also really sad where like literally it's kind of that classic you know instagram husband instagram wife thing where like we'll be walking I see it almost every single day. And then people just want that classic Maui picture, oh, yeah. right? Just like they're on the beach. And, and literally I've seen so many times where like this girl's in her bathing suit or whatever. And you can tell they just got to the beach. She gives the phone to the husband. She goes and walks to the edge of the beach and kind of does a pose or a strike yeah. or whatever, takes the picture and then they leave. And then they bounce. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm literally like, and I'm not, I'm not even, I'm not even, I've probably seen that over a hundred times yeah. where the, end, so, and then now think about all the way through. Okay. So then, you know, you're her friend and you get on Instagram a couple days later and you see this picture Looks like they had an amazing time on the beach in Maui. No, they didn't. Right. They did. They literally didn't even spend five seconds on the beach. Yeah. They didn't swim. They didn't talk. They didn't hang out. Yeah. They, it was literally a manufactured moment. And it's just so weird, right? Like to like see the picture, but then also see how that picture was got, you know? And so, yeah, but we do that more than we think. What do you think that does for culture in terms of kids' self-esteem? Mm. Not necessarily like I'm like I'm a grown adult. Totally. Right. So we can handle when Instagram more. came out, yeah. I was, I think, a freshman in college. Totally. You know, so like by the time it was there, my feelings weren't as yeah. attached it's to it. It's native to them, natural to them. Yeah. And as a kid, like if you grow up with that and oh, yeah. you're seeing that kind of stuff, you know, well, they they're here. You're you're seeing everybody's highlight reel yes. and not seeing any of their failures, and you're comparing your failures to totally their, like mountaintops. Totally. What does that do? Oh, uh, there's so many different ways I, I like to answer that one. I think one, what I would say is, yeah, what it first does is it just commodifies all of our experiences that shouldn't be, like human experiences can't be measured or distilled in a laboratory, but we're kind of doing a pseudo version of that when we do this. It's like, we want to pe- transa- make it transaction, transactional, make it commodified. So that's the first thing I would say. Second thing is, yeah, oh, I'm going to get this stat wrong because it's I just read it, but it was something to the effect of like, I just read it the other day where it's like, 
your anxiety and your depression like dissipates by like 50% if you, like in people that they measured turning their phone off for a week or something like that. You know, like, they basically just yeah. said, get away from your phone and see if that actually changes your mental health. And lo and behold, it changes your mental health, right? It's literally, and mental health is serious and is internal. And there's ones that's way more chronic and way more serious. So it sometimes can't be solved by turning off your phone. But there's a lot yeah. on like this low grade level that I think 100% can. No, it has to be, right? Yes. I mean, the US is the most culturally advanced country, arguably in totally. the world, right? But we're also the leader in mental health. Yes, illnesses. exactly. Like we are the leader in anxiety, depression. Exactly. All exactly. Those because we as humans like look for problems. Totally. We have to have problems. Totally. So when our problem is no longer where am I going to get my next meal? Yes. Then we start manufacturing all these other problems. 100%. Like I posted this picture. Yes. I only got 12 likes. And last yeah, week. We I almost- this episode of the show is brought to you by Indeed. We are driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate is not to search at all. It's to match and match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need this platform, guys. I'm telling you, Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging candidates so you can connect with those people even faster. And it doesn't just help you hire faster. In fact, 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And look, guys, one of the things that I wish I would have used Indeed for is this matching service. You can search and search and search and search and search all day long, but to actually be presented with quality candidates, like 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 hiring a a recruiter for you that's presenting people that has actually done the work to vet them and uh, bring quality people in front of you, that work by itself is uh, the fact that it's done by a software instead of like a team of high quality recruiters is is pretty insane. So they leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day, which is why Indeed's matching engine is the best one that you can use. It's constantly learning from your own preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets at doing the job for you. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility over at indeed.com slash Travis. Just go to indeed.com slash Travis right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed here on the podcast. Indeed.com slash Travis. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Yeah, we almost like have exactly right. We have too much time on our hands to now make problems out of things that are kind of like such ridiculous problems. Right. Right? Instead of driving, we're in the back of an Uber. Yeah, right? like, exactly. Instead of Right. Yeah, one thing I would say that is, and but then back to your point about your son, but then also just coming up in the next generation of social media and like look, comparing failures to your best. There's a couple of analogies that help me, or one that specifically, and I think one thing is we need to do is like, we need to not get upset at the people that do share the highlight reel because mm-hmm. that's like a normal part of life, right? I think sometimes we go one way or the other. We just get like, oh, you're only sharing your highlights because there's a weird kickback in culture that's the opposite right now. So we were like, oh, you only share your highlights. You only share the good stuff. And it's like, well, I'm not going to show myself like barfing at the, in the toilet, but there's a weird culture right now that's trying to push that back. That's totally like, and it's totally the be vulnerable, be transparent, you know, like just say everything that's wrong with your marriage and your life. It's like, no, don't take that to the internet. That doesn't belong there. Yeah. Right. And so I think that's just as wrong. And I, so I think there's these two sides right now of like, when you craft and manufacture it, that's wrong. But then when you're also saying like, 
you know, be vulnerable, be vulnerable, be vulnerable online. I think that's wrong too, right? Because there's a, that, that's, that's not that space. And another way to think about it is, I think it's really helpful to think of social media like a family photo book, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Okay, so if you go into someone's family, someone's living room, they usually have a family photo book. Now, if you pick up that family photo book, it's probably just highlights, right? right? And there's nothing wrong with that, mm-hmm. right? There's nothing wrong with having a book that represents your family's highlights. There's no one, you know, grandma drunk or someone throwing up, like it's not in there. Why? Because there's something about narratives too, that I think we're narrative creatures. We like to remember certain narratives and it's okay to have the highlights. Where the family photo book gets problematic or where we would make it problematic is what if actually, because back to the first of all, you go in the house, you look at the family photo book, you learn the family, that's so cool. You look at it maybe in six months. Where the photo book would be really problematic is if you live in a home where you wake up and you pick up the photo book and you just read it every single day and then five minutes later, you go back to it and then you, you bite something and f- go back to it. You eat something, you go back to it. You drink some coffee, you go back to it. Then you would start saying like, oh yeah, that person is probably getting a really, really, really seriously distorted view right. of what they think that family's narrative is. But is the problem the family's narrative? No. The problem is they shouldn't be looking at a photo book seven hours a day. Right. Right? Then so then it, it's kind of on the consumer side right there. It turns into this internal game of then like, Man, today sucks. Yes. Right? Remember this day? Yeah, you're like we that were, was Disneyland. We were in, yeah, in exactly. Ma- in Mass- yeah, we were on the beach. 100%. We took that picture. Yeah. You know? but and now I'm just sitting in my living room. Yes. Yeah. So, so I think that, because I don't, that's a, I think it's a really helpful analogy because we do these weird one or the others. Well, that one kind of answers both, right? Of like, it's okay to share the highlights, but be honest. You're not manufacturing pictures. You're not just going to Disneyland for the picture. Right. You went to Disneyland and you took a picture. So that's fair. But then on the second one, it's like, yeah, we have to also really reckon with like, it's usually, not always. Usually sometimes the the person who's holding the phone, what it is, it's like, we've been looking at the photo book too much. So put it down and go do real life. Before we turn the mics on, you were saying like, you're not even really in the marketing in your business anymore, which has to feel weird for you because like in your core, your DNA is your marketer, Mm -hmm. but you have stepped into the role of CEO so that you can operate and run the entire business effectively. Mm -hmm. And that came as a result of basically from what I understand, you were focused so much on marketing and sales and acquisition that you grew and scaled so much, like really fast, like from zero to a million a month in a matter of less than a year. Right? We went from zero, we launched and went from zero to a million a month in four months. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's 20 million crazy. our first year. Yeah. that That's unheard of. And the fact that you, you were even able to recover from that is still mind blowing. But you obviously, there was a time period where you say you were even in a state of depression, almost suicidal you're doing 1.5, 1.8 million a month top line revenue and then start realizing that you're losing 300 grand a month even though you're making 100, like 1.5, 1.6, 1. 1.7. It's like, what is happening? Because now you're a marketer and you're thrust into this massive business and now you're running into all the other problems that a business has, which mm-hmm. you don't think about as a marketer. You're, you're thinking acquisition. You see that top line moving up, you're like, we're winning. Mm-hmm. And then you take a peek behind the curtain, you're like, wait a second, like how does our bank account have less money in it this month than it did last month, but our revenue says that we made $1.8 million. How did mm-hmm. that even happen? So talk me through your transition. You know, When did you embrace that role of moving from, hey guys, I'm a marketer, to like, no, I need to be the CEO and I need to have an understanding of what's happening in every aspect of my business? Man, so this is gonna be a little bit of a story, but I, and I, but I, will, pro- I will say that it's probably worth it. And it's like one of these things that like, I think every, some everyone who is aspiring to be, you know, an enterprise level entrepreneur has to kind of go through and mo- almost everybody like you talked about marketers who've evolved into a CEO and actually been able to build something that's like a real legitimate standing business. They've all gone through this sort of evolution in their own ways. 
And so, yeah, we launched and scale. So we launched November of 2016. We opened our doors to the public with our courses and coaching program. By March of 2017, we had our first million dollar month. We scaled to like 19 million and some change by the, so almost $20 million in revenue by the end of 2017. And I thought that when I got to that place in my business, when I got to like a million dollars a month or whatever, I thought that there would be some sense of fulfillment or satisfaction or happiness that was found there. And really there wasn't. There was actually like a real vast emptiness that was found there because I thought that somehow the money was gonna make me happy, let's say. Realized fairly quickly that that was not what was gonna make me happy. And I found myself in this place where all of a sudden I had like 60 something employees. I had all of these different financial issues. I spent much more of my time on meetings and and working through issues and problems in the business and people problems and process problems and all these things than I did actually doing the thing that I loved, which was marketing, right? And so I eventually fell into this several month long depression, that depression, why it originally started out as like some severe anxiety. I would get up in the morning and I would instantly start having panic attacks like before I even got out of bed and I would not want to get out of bed. It's a good way to start the day. Great way to start the yeah, day. Yeah. yeah, I forgot I forgot what stage that is in Tony Robbins morning routine, but <laughs> yeah, panic and anxiety. I forget where that goes. Like somewhere between meditation and like cold plunge. Yeah. <laughs> it was like journaling, panic attack. Yeah. So yeah, I'd wake up, I'd have a panic attack, man, uh, on many mornings, get in the shower, try my best to get through it. Oftentimes, I would have to take a shit, take a shit, take a, take a shot. Same with me. Yeah, yeah. We're on the same page, bro. Panic attack, meditation, One the same. shit. Yeah, yeah, No, no, no. We're, but I'd take a shot sometimes just to like take that edge off a little bit and then plug into work. And then I'd find myself drinking myself to sleep at night yeah. just to wind back down. And so it started out as an anxiety. It eventually rolled into a depression. I then went on a vacation to Hawaii to take a break and I thought that that would give me some space to like chill out and relax and in fact the depression got worse while I was in Hawaii and that's when like the suicidal thoughts started to kick in and now I'm like thinking like oh my god am I gonna off myself like and all this sort of stuff and so I I started looking for for help and the long and the short of it is so I went through this process for several months but the long and the short of it is I, I over time I talked to a psychologist who I had started seeing originally when I was like 16 years old because I went and I ended up in anger management and all this shit because I was getting lots of fights and stuff in school. That was my way of coping with my parents' divorce. And so I go back to see him. I I hire a couple of coaches that I'd met along the way. Thankfully, I had a lot of personal development experience prior to that. And I don't mean just reading personal development books. I mean like going back and looking at my traumas in life and trying to heal those traumas so that I could bring more of myself to the to the present and to the table mm-hmm. in my business. So I hired a couple of my coaches. I went back to see a psychologist and I started to work through this stuff. And one of the biggest epiphanies that I found is that I was doing all this stuff every day that was no longer the stuff that I love doing. And I either needed to scale the business back and learn how to, and, and build something that where I could just do this thing that I love doing, or I had to learn to fall in love with a new role that I was being called to do, Mm. right? So I think that that's the evolution that most of us as entrepreneurs have to go through because most entrepreneurs start out as a technician, like they're great at something, right? Oh, I love baking, I wanna open a bakery. And so, well, you open a bakery and now you never fucking bake again, right? I love marketing and sales, so I wanna teach people marketing and sales and people keep asking me about it. So I'm gonna create this courses and coaching business and I'll get to talk all about marketing and sales. And now I never talk about marketing and sales, right? 
so, and now I'm dealing with all these human resources issues and accounting drama and all this, looking at balance sheets and all the stuff that I can't understand. So the overwhelming majority of entrepreneurs will actually reach that point, that breaking point, and then they eventually scale their business back down and they never push past that limit. And I'm not saying that you should, I'm just saying, you, I mean, at some point, just decide, right? What I did is I decided like I need to fall in love with this new role that I was doing. And so thankfully I had kind of a, a model, a framework to work off of. It comes from a Dr. John D. Martini, who's easily my favorite, like probably the brightest human being walking the earth that almost nobody knows of. Mm. And his model is called the hierarchy of values, which comes from a field of study known as axiology, which is a study of value of, and worth. And through the hierarchy of values, which I talk about a lot because it's the most universally sound principle that I've ever found from a teleological perspective. And teleology is the study of why things happen, not in the form of what causes them, but in the form of what purpose do they serve. Mm. And so a lot of the challenges that we face as human beings, procrastination, hesitation, frustration, overwhelm, self-sabotage, imposter syndrome, those actually serve a purpose, believe it or not. And the hierarchy of values model that was derived by Dr. Demartini helps explain what some of that purpose is. But I, I looked then at my values, like what did I really value in life? And I, I learned that I had to like link my values to the things, the activity that I had to do in my business every day. Mm -hmm. Like I didn't love reading legal contracts. I didn't love looking at accounting <clears throat> spreadsheets. I yeah. didn't love getting on 50 meetings a week. I didn't love dealing with people problems and their infighting and their drama and stuff. Sure. I didn't love those things. But then I had to f figure out, okay, but if I do have a high value on building financial independence, well then how is me reading legal contracts gonna be a benefit and service to my value of building financial independence? Mm -hmm. How is understanding human resource issues going to be a benefit and service to my value of building financial independence and really linking those things together. So the way that Dr. Demartini explains it is that when it comes to your values, right, you can either do what you love by delegation, which means that you just do the things you love and delegate everything else, or learn to love what you do by linking it back to your values. Mm. And so I've had to do a bit of both, right? I do a lot of delegation, obviously, or I wouldn't be able to have the enterprise level business that we have right now, which I guess you would call about a medium sized business and, and growing. But I also along the way at times still even till today have to find ways to link these tasks that are on my plate, these things that I have to do that I quote unquote have to do, like listen to our language. Our language tells us a lot yeah, about how right. we're actually operating <clears throat> subconsciously, right? So have to do, need to do, ought to do, should do. These are all things that we say when we're trying to, when we're trying to approach something that doesn't link back to our values. Mm. And so when, when our conscious mind can't link together something that we're doing or a goal that we have, and if it, if it can't link that back to our values, it spits out that feedback in the terms of our language. But when I find myself doing things that I feel like I have to do, need to do, ought to do, should do, that I don't really want to do and I'm coming up in a resistance against and I'll sit and I'll ask myself, okay, well, how is doing this? How is solving this problem in my business? How is executing this task gonna be a benefit and service to the things that I do value in my life? And I'll look for those links so that I can learn to love what I'm called to do on this journey that is entrepreneurship. You know? Yeah, I love that answer, man. L linking values back to the things that you don't enjoy doing to give you a sense of purpose behind them. Or yeah, I, oh, man, I forget the book I was reading recently, but essentially said something very similar to that. It was talking about linking your purpose, your why mm -hmm. to the, to things that you don't super enjoy. And it, and it got me thinking about like, Hey, if this is something that I'm not like, if, if I'm selling something that I'm not like super passionate about, 
but it helps fulfill like some sort of a why. Like it, if I could really understand the why behind it, then you can really start to fulfill that role. And in that particular scenario, you can sell more effectively. You can have more confidence in your offers. You can, you can lead more effectively. But in this scenario, saved your life. It wasn't a matter of like... Probably oh, in I, a very real sense, it yeah. saved my life. Is philosophy something that you think a lot about now? It sounds like you kind of had this journey of like hustler, 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 hustler for 12 years and then entrepreneur, marketer, and then, oh no, everything's going terribly, even though theoretically it's going really well. And now I'm becoming this like, this modern day philosopher, because I have to figure out first how to get my own mental state under control so that I can go back and do the things that I enjoy doing, because if I don't figure that out first, it was almost like you went entrepreneur, philosopher, then CEO. Do you feel like you still think a lot about that stuff now. Would you say that you found at least some sort of purpose or meaning or happiness or joy after the reset? I would say that the evolution probably looked more like failed entrepreneur, philosopher, <laughs> successful entrepreneur, revisiting philosophy to like take me through to that next stage of my own evolution. Okay. Philosophy is like, so that that's just something that I came across in the world of personal development, yeah. right? And going to seminars and doing these experiential things and retreats. And I mean, I mean, I slept for two days in the fucking woods by myself, like yeah. vision quests and all these weird things, okay? But philosophy is probably what helped me to kind of formulate a set of principles and belief systems that allowed me to go from failed entrepreneur to somebody who could actually be successful, yeah. right? And I, I say this a lot, we even, it's, it's a part of our core curriculum is that success is the marriage of skill set and mindset. So philosophy helped me develop the mindset that was necessary. Yeah. Here's what I find, man, is I find like the most successful people that I know, like last night I was at dinner with a guy who just acquired 49 businesses last year in a roll up and is on the cusp of exiting this thing for 150 to 175 million and he's got four buyers on the on the table right now. And then I'm sitting next to a guy who has one of the largest VC funds in the world. And inevitably what we end up talking about is some philosophy that we have that's helped us achieve that success in life, mm. right? If you look at Hormozy got super popular right now. And I used to, I've hung out with Hormozy in the past. Really really smart dude. But if you look at like some of his interviews that have done the best, it's where he starts to transition into his own philosophies Absolutely. about business and success and life, mm. right? And so I think that to some degree, as part of our evolution, especially when we're reaching for new heights to, to places that we've never been before, we've got to create some sort of philosophy around who we are, how we fit into the world. We, we create models about the world and our and how we fit into that. And for, through that philosophy, we develop some sort of like principles yeah. or models that we use to kind of understand and problem solve. I was reading something recently that said that science is the exploration of what we know and philosophy is the exploration of what we don't. Hmm. It's asking the questions <clears throat> that are almost unquantifiable, can't fully be measured, can't fully even be answered, right? And if science does find a way to catch up and answer it, then a new philosophical question opens up as a new gateway yeah. to the next threshold of understanding. Yeah, new line of thinking. Right. That's it for today's episode. Thanks for spending some time with me and my friends. If you want to be better friends with me, then head over to travischapel.com slash team to subscribe to my free newsletter, Your Friend Travis, where I share what's on my mind about life, building a business, raising kids, being married, and anything else I would normally share with my close circle of friends. That's travischapel.com slash team. 
And my biggest ask of you since I'm sharing my friends with you is to share this episode with a friend of yours that hasn't listened to the show yet. And leave us a quick five-star rating in Apple Podcasts and in Spotify. It would mean the world to us as it helps us make sure that this show continues to be more valuable to you. Thanks in advance, and I'll catch you on the next episode. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.